Good morning, ANC. It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, welcome to round two. We're going to get it right this time. If you're visiting, if you're visiting this morning, uh, welcome. Uh, grab a little thing in front of you and let us know you're here. If you're part of the group that's been trucking with us for all these years, I'm just, it's just good to see your face. I wish the weeks had more Sundays. Uh, my kids don't, so anyway. <laughs> So we've been working on a scorcher of a summer series, um, and we've been building some momentum, and we called it, well, sort of called it, the isms related to our faith. And it's been a bit of a tour de force of conversations, and frankly, I can't think of any harder conversations to have, or we would have put them in there. So we're having all the hard ones, right? And so we began with legalism and fundamentalism, which is relatively mundane. We jumped to sexism, and it was a whole other level. Then we talked about biblical literalism. Nationalism, which is not hard to talk about these days. We talked about colonialism, then we talked about evangelism as a subset of colonialism. Uh, and then we talked about last week about racism. And I feel like we cracked a vault. And something leaked out, and it's in the water now. And we're going to take our time with it this morning. In fact, I think if I had to tell you what we're here to do today is we're here to call this not a one-off or a one-week or a two-week conversation. This is a new season we're in. There are times when you pull a lever and everything changes, and you can't unpull that lever. And I feel like that's what has happened this week with the conversations that I've been having. This summer's been an adventure. All the podcasts are up. If you are just becoming aware of us, track them all there. What you need to know, I think it's important, is that I've not done this work alone. This has been a collection of the most amazing people. Um, you can't have these conversations alone. It, they, would, they would be lopsided. It would be like a flat tire. And so I've relied on Mark who Mark Williams is our poet. I've relied on Allison Dashcam, always do. Carissa Ray in Grand Rapids. I've relied on Stan Mitchell and Don Smith. And Mike and Kiel Nonmacher, I saw your faces. Kind of responsible for this whole thing, to be honest. Um, Sam Beach and Will Kyler, you guys here? Where's Sam? They're back. It's their one-year one anniversary, so they better not be in church. I think you better be doing something, something different. Caesar, long before Caesar got here, relying on him. Y'all don't fill those things in with your mind. That's not helpful. <laughs> This here being church, this is not Saturday night, this is Sunday morning. Caesar, and then I've relied on the thoughtful work of Esha and Dr. Tim and Julie Wang and Jen Science and Elia Rodriguez and Adrian Queen. Adrian, are you here? Adrian's probably not here. Um, it's been an interesting and amazing conversation that we've had. Something Matt Mayofsky mentioned to me a while ago, and I didn't like it when he said it, Don, but he was right, as Don knew, uh, who we, have, we share him in... It, He's a mutual friend of ours. He said, good preachers rely on multivocal approach to preaching. It's not just one angle. It's not just one perspective. It's actually more like a team that does this work. And I remember thinking, yeah, but I don't work that way. And I remember actually saying that to him. He says, well, you need to start. And I'm like, okay. Um, but here's, here's the thing. It doesn't require me to not be me as, pre as pastor, as preacher. It requires me to be part of an us, a greater us. And so the adventure really is identifying what that us is and what is the resource that we can leverage to have the hardest conversations we can have. Here's what I know. A lot of you would not be here if we weren't having the hardest conversations on the books. You just wouldn't be. Church is not that compelling anymore, guys, if it's not talking about the right stuff, the hard stuff. And so I know that. And now we've somehow made this an entire team effort to make a Sunday work. And so welcome to the new reality. Last week, we dove into the subject of racism uh, if you didn't catch it, today's not going to make a lot of sense, so maybe put your earbuds in and catch it while we're catching you up. Uh, but I had different plans for today. I wanted to talk about the strange relationship between militarism and evangelical faith. I wanted to talk about the contradictions of being pro-war and pro-life 
I wanted to talk about just war theory and this inexplicable connection between American evangelicalism and a seemingly unstoppable American military complex. I wanted to talk about those things and kind of see if we could make sense of that. I wanted to introduce you to the great pacifist movements of the Christian faith because I'm not sure everyone is aware that there are entire tribes within Christianity that are resolutely pacifist, but we're not going to do that today. Sounds interesting, right? But I woke up Monday morning and I did my little routine. I did my little lap of the lakefront and took a dip in Barton Springs and I sat for my cup of coffee and I thought, we're not done with this. This feels like more than just a one-off. This feels like more than just a one day. And so I started to soundboard with the panel that was with us last week. And I started to ask that question, how do we honor what happened, the extraordinary conversation that we had in this room last week? How do we slow down enough? I don't want to overstate this, but I think this is true, so I'm going to say it. I think we're sitting at the starting line of a whole new race for this little church. It feels to me like it's a whole new conversation. Jen and I have been talking about this. For, she dropped the, dropped the hint. I can't even remember how long ago. She said, I think this is going to be where we go next. And so we've been building to this, but I feel like we are just now at the starting line looking at a whole new goal. I think what happened last week, and it's been happening all summer, is a new direction for, for ANC, for this little church. And so we're going to pool and gather and deploy our resources in this direction. We've learned how to be welcoming. It's time to be open. It's time to, it's time to put the all back in all, and it's time to see ourselves differently. So that's what I, I wanted to do today instead of move on to the next thing. And so I spent my week a little different than I would have otherwise. I took Elliot's wisdom last week and I just listened and I convened several spaces, some of them all white, some of them all people of color, some of them a mixed combination of those two things. And I heard some beautiful and complicated truths being spoken. What I want to do today is name some of that. And the reason for that is because you need to know you're not alone. You need to know you're not alone. Where you're beginning and how you're approaching this and your initial response and your sense of uh, of, of being drawn into this, you're not alone, and so I think that matters. So here was my question. What needs to be said to initiate healing and reconciliation? What needs to be said so that we can move towards one another? What might my role be, if any, as your pastor? And I was entertaining the thought that my role might be to say nothing more. That was a, that was a very valid option until about midweek. The question on my heart and my mind this week is how do we come back together in this little room that we lit on fire last week? How do we come back together with honesty and with vulnerability? How do we attend to one another? How do we hear one another? How do we see one another differently? How do we repair what needs to be repaired? How do we slowly begin to move towards creating something new? Because I think that's always been the invitation. This has never just been about getting together and feeling good. This has always been something that we're building together. Now, I want to be crystal clear. I don't mean how do we move on past this. I don't mean how do we smooth over the awkward. I don't mean how do we act like we didn't open Pandora's box. What I mean is how do we sit with one another differently? How do we become an organism, an organization that is anti-racist from the cell level up? Now, it's going to take some building. It's going to take some work. So this is not an effort to move past this. This is an effort to slow the whole thing down and say we're going to sit in this for a season. There's no rush. We're going to sit in this for a season. First thing I always do when I know I need a perspective of someone who is very distinct, comes from a different place uh, than I do, I, I call Carissa and I say, what would you do? She's a person of color. She's Korean adoptee, and she uh, is a third culture kid, pastor's kid, and a therapist, and she just gets us and gets this. She says, you could start by remembering what happened and honoring the memory of how we got here as a country, as a church. Uh, who, was the, who was injured and who inflicted the damage. You could reclaim who you were, who you are, and who you've always been. She says you could repair what was broken inside of you, between you, and around you. 
You could reconcile the differences and close the distance. You could restore the peace, the connection, and the unity. You could recreate a new community, a better world, a more whole community together. And I said, well, why don't you just come do that? (laughs) And I think she's right. We spent the first seven weeks of this year talking about our vision as a church. And I remember getting to the end of it and saying, I need you to be all in with this. If this resonates with you, travel with us. I think we need to make that same invitation right now. If you have always wanted to do this work, now is when we need your voice. Now is when we need your eyes. Now more than ever, if you're in this room, if you're listening to this podcast, the hard work before us is going to need your help. We can't do it alone. I can't lead it alone. This is something we have to do as a community. You know, there's reasons why churches don't do this. There's reasons why you leave this one ism unmentioned, right? Because everything is now put into question. The reasons that you don't rub the lamp is so the genie doesn't come out. Well, guys, the genie's out of the bottle, and now we're aware. Sitting in this room listening to someone who has been here for eight years, who has served and who has connected and who has been involved at every level, sit here and say, I still feel like a guest is a devastating delivery of data that we have to listen to. The genie is out of the bottle, and now the conversation just got real, didn't it? And so that's what we're here to do together. You can't unpull the lever we've pulled, and so here we go. You know, when you turn the lights on in a room and you see things differently, you see your reality differently, you see people of color's reality differently, you can't unsee that. And my suggestion to you is that this is where we're going, so go with us. I want to take another opportunity to thank the members of the panel last week for their courage. Imagine the courage it takes to sit in front of a church and reveal what you know is an upsetting and disturbing truth. Imagine figuring out how to walk out of the building when you're done. Imagine figuring out how to walk back in next week. At least we left in silence last week where eyesight, eye lines didn't meet and people mostly looked at the floor. Imagine having to come back into this space with the weight, knowing the collective angst around what we are now aware of needs to be repaired, but they can't do that work for us. So I want to congratulate them and thank them for their courage. What they said has been needed, we've needed to hear for a long time. And we're honored that they took that opportunity to do that. We tried to make it, yeah, I think that's legit. We tried to make it clear last week, but in case it wasn't, we know that we're not solving systemic racism in a single 30-minute conversation. In fact, we also know that we're not going to fix everything that's wrong at ANC in a single conversation. We we would be naive to think that. What we do know is that we are beginning a conversation that's going to move in a direction. You don't fix 400 years in 30 minutes. Today at 2 o'clock is the 400th anniversary of those first black heels on our soil in the beginning of this debacle that we've becoming aware of and we're understanding for what it is. It was never our goal to fix it in a single week. Our goal was to initiate new kinds of conversations. And I think we hit our target based on what I'm hearing from all over our community. Truly hearing one another and seeing one another has always been the work of the community of faith. It's never been about doing your duty and feeling good because you were in church on Sunday. It's always going to take us here. This was always the point. And just to add a little pressure to it, the onlooking world is watching how we do this, and this is how they will know that God is alive. That's what the scripture says. So I'm not going to re-explain what happened last week, but I will offer this little summary. It's important to hear that people struggle in a space as guests. It's important to know that assimilation is a mirage to people of color. 
it's as if we say, not necessarily we, but the system says, it's as if the system says, if you do all these things, you get to be one of us, and they just keep moving the mirage forward, it's important to pause and hear those words. And so, some thoughts to the people of color in our congregation that have been listening to this week. Here's some thoughts. I'm hearing you articulate your story bravely. I'm hearing your heart. I'm hearing grace and truth, and I'm hearing courage. I'm also hearing you begin to reject the myth of assimilation. I'm hearing you wake up and realize that no matter how hard you work to earn access, the system is designed to never give you that key. I hear you beginning to describe a new world, and I hear enough courage and leadership in your voice that I actually believe you're going to need to show us how to get there. Here's what I would say to you. Rise up. Speak up. Don't filter. Don't soft land it the way you've learned to do it in American institutions of higher learning. Rise up, show up, and unfold. Whatever work needs to be done to make room for your unfolding is work we must do, not you. Stay with us in this conversation. Enrich us with your eyesight, your voice, your resilience, your beauty. What's happened to you matters. Hear me now. The hard, the awful, the injustice, the racism, it's real. We name it, it's true. We believe you, and it matters. What you had to go through to succeed in this place, in this country, and even in these churches like ours, it's wrong. It's wrong. It held you back, and I want to name that, and I want us to understand that that caused pain and suffering that you didn't deserve to have to carry. We have been, and we still are, part of a system and a story that says very clearly that people of color are either less than or too much, or at the very least, scary and to be afraid of. Our country, our people, have inflicted this pain, and whether knowingly or not, it's wrong. We see it and we name it. I want you to hear us name it. There's no one seeing it now. There's no unringing that bell. We hear that you have felt dismissed and denied and forgotten and unseen and powerless and pushed aside by a system that we've benefited from, and we've been reluctant to address and disassemble. It's going to get hotter in here a couple degrees. Hang with me, church. We believe you when you describe how deeply this has affected you, and we will resist the urge to make our pain the point. We will leave the focus on the story you are telling us. We choose to sit in and with this tension because tension always carries the possibility of something new to be birthed in us, in you, between us, all around us, in our community and in our world. We will do the work to build trust and create connection, to create spaces where healing can happen, to carefully cultivate a garden where weeds and thorns that divide us are ripped out before they take root. We commit to this work. That's what we're here to do. We need your voice, people of color. We need your experience. We need your wisdom. We need your creativity. We don't know the way forward without you, and we're sorry that we left you alone to figure out how to live and relate to us in assimilated ways. We say what that is. That's us expecting you to become us. We repent of that. We name that. It's not your job to teach us. It's our responsibility to learn. We're deciding together to come alongside of you and walk with you, revisiting what we need to, grieving what we need to, lamenting what we must, breaking off what we need to, repairing what we need to, owning what we must, celebrating what we get to together, and always holding the hope that tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday or even today. We want to do this work with you in your time, at your pace, as you are ready. Show us what you need, and we will follow. That's what I want to say to the people of color in this community. What I'm hearing from our white community, and what I'd like to say to them is this. I'm hearing surprise. I'm hearing shock. 
I'm hearing discomfort. I'm hearing embarrassment that anyone would feel like an outsider in this place. Of all places, we've struggled to be welcoming. I'm hearing some denial. I'm hearing some things like, well, my best friend is a person of color. I'm not a racist. I'm colorblind. I'm hearing that. And I'm also hearing how empty that sounds. I'm also hearing how unreal that sounds and how deeply embedded within the world of privilege you even have to be to say those words. But when I hear this stuff and I press gently pastorally on these responses, I'm hearing people begin to own their privilege, begin to own and understand their complicity. I'm hearing hunger for something better, and I'm hearing a huge gasp of, wow, followed by a collective, now what? I hear it. So here's what I would say to you, my beloved white people in this congregation. Anywhere can be a good enough place to begin. I'm glad you're back today. I'm glad you're going to commit to this. We need you to don't erase yourself Don't erase yourself. We need you in this game as well. I felt empathy and compassion. I felt righteous indignation rise last week as we processed this hard truth together. You're doing the right thing by resisting the urge to make yourself the point of reference, and we did the right thing by leaving in silence. We honored what we heard. Continue to resist any attempt to take the attention off of the injured party here and put it back on your pain. Just let this germinate for a bit. Beautiful things will grow. I want you to dig in. I want you to dig in deeply. I want you to read and watch and study and learn. I would like to say we need you too in the most urgent and profound way. Don't erase yourself because you feel guilty. Stay in this. All means all, and all includes you as well. But also don't expect to be celebrated for all of a sudden being so woke. Don't expect applause for feeling guilty. Don't fall for, the, for the, the things that we were taught as children to always move the middle of the world back to over us. We will survive not being at the center of this conversation, y'all. We're going to survive not being at the center of the universe. We're going to survive this. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Release. Don't disappear. Release. And finally, I want to say a few things about what rose in me, and then Caesar's going to turn our attention to the teaching of the word today. Some things that rose in me and what I would like to say to myself. Someone told me last week that they felt bad that I had to be on stage. Hearing this data that delivered a devastating blow to the church I'm giving my life to build, someone says, I was embarrassed for you. And I'm embarrassed by the fact that you even noticed the look on my face last week. The idea that anyone would have been concerned for me felt like someone rushing to the scene of a car on pedestrian accident and checking to see if the car was okay. Wait with it. Yep, it'll drop. You'll get it. Here's what rose in me, in case you were interested. Gratitude rose in me. Amazement at the quality of reflection and the depth of experience from these people. The courage of the panel members. Sadness also rose in me that I can go anywhere and feel as if I have no race whatsoever and they cannot. Anger rose in me when Jen described how her son's being treated. I could feel my heart pound. Anger rose when, when I had to hear how people speak louder to Dr. Wang, of all people, who's a neuroscientist. They think he, he's clearly not American or white, so he's Asian-American, so I guess we have to speak. So I felt anger that they would do that to him. I felt anger that Esha would have to explain her Christian credentials after multiple generations of being in the church. And I felt anger that anyone would make Elliot feel stupid in school. Anger and sadness that Adrian and Sean are bringing these two beautiful young black boys into our space and part of them has to die to bring them here because there's a missing part of their culture. I felt anger and frustration. That's what rose in me because I love these people. I didn't feel defensive, in case you were curious. I didn't feel attacked. I felt ashamed that we're now waking up to what has always been and what it's like to be in our midst. I felt honored to pull back the curtain and show you what we're not supposed to see. 
here's what I would say to myself. And I spent a lot of time talking to myself this week. It's okay to wake up late. As long as you wake up, it's okay to show up a few minutes after the party started as long as you make it. It's okay to feel a massive loss of control and feel the center of leadership move to a place where I'm unfamiliar with. It's okay to wonder how to lead. It's okay to run it through filters of people of color, to hear how it sounds before I say it. It's okay. As long as we can agree that we're going to move forward together. It's okay to have an all-white staff and an all-white board for now. It can't stay that way. It's okay for now. It's a good enough place to begin. We're ready to move in that direction. I spent the whole week telling myself it's not too late. We can do this. We can build new stuff out of the stuff we inherited as long as we do it together. I would say to myself what Anna Sikorsky-Wearsmith told me this week. She says, courage is contagious. Of course, she grabs that from Brene, but it's true. Be bold. Name it and lead. That's what I would tell myself this week. So what you're feeling Together this week is absolutely what we're supposed to be feeling. The train is right on schedule. We are exactly where we're supposed to be. This is exactly where love leads if you follow it. If, it, if you follow the gospel, it's always going to address those things that divide us. It, unless we somehow neuter it or castrate it or tie it down, the gospel will always take us to this place. And so we are exactly where we need to be. Don't interpret the tension as, the, as, as some sort of data that says we're off track. Take a deep breath together. We have not lost our way. I think we found our way. And the loss of center is the point of all of this. Caesar, take us to the word. Good morning. As you know, my name is Cesar. And I have a testimony. My wife and children tell me all the time that I'm not funny. <laughs> so I'm going to prove them wrong this morning. Or prove them right. Who knows? Okay, this is my attempt. A Jew, a Pentecostal, and a Methodist walk into a bar, and after talking for... <laughs> you were not expecting me to start like this, right? Okay, let me try another one. An American, a Polish man, and an Irish man walk into a bar, and, well, let's face it, I'm not funny. Okay, they are right, I'm not funny. But you know these kind of jokes. Uh, and you know, what is the point of those, jo those jokes? If you're a Methodist, probably you will win the joke. If you're American, probably you will win the joke. Uh, humor can cut deep, able to express what people think but are reluctant to say. Humor and popular stories have been a good x-ray of society for millennia. I think a good story is better than any sermon. Everyone is able to remember a good story, but not everybody remembers the supermarket list. And the husband says, Amen. Amen. <laughs> Jesus knows that, and that's why the deepest teaching of the gospel are, are done in a parable format. Listen, the parables do not illustrate a teaching. The parables are a teaching. I, I won't talk about this right now, but I will do it in the future, so please don't forget that idea. Uh, and the kind of jokes I was trying before are not as new as we might think. In Jesus' time, they already existed in a format of tales. In those tales, there were usually three characters. Two of them, Jews related with the religious system, priests, Levites, but the third one was always an ordinary Jew, 
always an ordinary Jew. The stories set up a situation where the, where the characters interact, and these stories were often scathing critiques of the civic religious system. They generally exalted the actions of someone normal, a commoner from the average population. The important characters didn't do the right thing, but the commoner, depressed citizen, did. And I'm guessing you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Is that okay? Okay, perhaps you are so familiar with it that it started to sound like another moral tale. Uh, we call this insensitivity by saturation. So let me see if I can, at least if I can try to restore our sense of wonder in this amazing story. Would you believe me if I said that some of what we are going through as a church can be found in the context of the Good Samaritan parable? Believe me, it is there. This is an example of a deeply cutting story that Jesus told often. You can find the story in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And there's so much to dig into that story. So please go home and read it carefully. Maybe we can talk about it later. It will be my pleasure to do that with you. And in that story, the scribe or the expert in the law asked Jesus about one of the hot topics of the day, eternal life. Before answering his question, Jesus asked him another, how do you interpret what is written in the law? The scribe provides the correct answer, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus agrees, but for the scribe, it doesn't sound enough. You see, it was easy for a Jew of the first century to know which God to love. The issue wasn't about God but about which neighbor to love. The nation in those days was under a foreign occupation. At that precise moment in history, the Jewish concept, concept of your neighbor would have been exclusively another Jew, just another Jew. A religious Jew of the first century could say, I have the right revelation of God. I have access to the right temple. I have the right religion, and I'm under oppression. All others too, but doesn't matter. Soon enough, Israel will be redeemed, set free, and we will be able to take revenge on other nations. See, when you grow up thinking that you are the God's chosen, at some point, you became the point of reference. The entire universe orbits around you. Even God, your version of God, or my version of God, a God with a very small G. Jesus chose us to tell a parable. After the priest and the Levite appear in the story, it's quite obvious for the scribe knows that the third character will be that pious Jew who will do the right thing. But Jesus does, does something unexpected. And the hero of the story ends up being a hated Samaritan. This leads me to the question, why didn't the first two characters in the parable act with mercy? Why? I think it's basically for two reasons, and both have to do with politics and religion. 
two inseparable, inseparable issues in the ancient world, as it is today, right? The first one, if the injured person on the ground is dead and they touch him, they will be unclean for seven days. That is quite bad for people who is working in the religious system. They couldn't be able to work in the temple. And number two, if the injured person in our story is alive, but it's not Jewish, so there's no point. He is not your neighbor. And there's two things that you should consider to realize what is the nationality of that man. The first one is clothing, and the other one is the accent. So in the story, the injured guy is naked, so there's no clothes to evaluate. And in the story, the guy is half dead, so he's not able to talk. So there's no way to realize if that guy is Jew or not. And the Samaritan clearly doesn't have the right religion. He doesn't even worship in the right temple, but he has a right heart. He sees the need and acts. Listen, the excess of religion makes us less human, more prejudiced, more inclined to separate the world into sides, categories, ins and outs. And obviously, I am, or you are, on the side that is right, obviously. But nothing is off limits to Jesus. He shifts the point of reference of this story. To value or undervalue people because of their skin color or because of their national background or because of their socioeconomic reality is to be blind to the image of God in that person. Let's try to recover the scandal in this story, okay? And we will use our imagination. Do you have some imagination this morning? Okay, let's try to use it, okay? And now try to put yourself in the place of the master of the law, the scribe. Now you are the master of the law. Now you are the scribe. And think of this. If you are homophobic, maybe the Samaritan is a member of the LGBTQ community. If you are progressive, maybe the Samaritan is a fundamentalist. If you are a Democrat, the Samaritan is obviously Mr. Trump. If you are a Republican, the Samaritan is naturally Obama, maybe. If you are a racist, the Samaritan is Hispanic, African-American, Indian-American, Native American, Chinese, etc. This can help us to understand the scandal of this entire situation that Jesus is provoking. This is on purpose. He's provoking that. The discomfort that was all the time on purpose. We are not so used to feel like that, and it's necessary. The issue is this. In the story, Jesus is not longer answering the question, who is my neighbor? His answer no longer revolves around the expert of the law, now revolves around the other that is offensive to him for whatever reason. Jesus points to the unexpected goodness and says, go and do likewise. Go and do the same. In Jesus' pedagogy, there are no more answers to make you feel better if what actually needs is a worldview overhaul. And I want to be honest this morning. I want to open my heart to say this. 
and to say that oftentimes Jesus makes me feel uncomfortable. Oftentimes Jesus makes me feel confronted, not in peace. If you think following Jesus will make your life easy, you're wrong. He will identify things in your heart you have never considered before. That scares me, but makes me want to follow Jesus even more. For example, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I'm not your arbiter. Oh, Jesus, what good thing, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Uh, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is not longer about you. Go and be the neighbor of whoever needs you. This was the message of Jesus then. This is the message of Jesus today. You are not longer the center. I'm not longer the center. It's not about who is my neighbor. It's about being everyone's neighbor. Once the good news take root in our heart, we will never be the center of the action anymore. The center is Christ. The center is the gospel. And the gospel will always move us in the direction of those who are most difficult for us to tolerate. And you are called to love and embrace them, not just to tolerate them. The new center is the periphery. New visions almost always come from the periphery perspective. Have you noticed that? It's able to bring new visions about what we are already doing. It can alert us of those vices in which we do not repair because we are too used to. And if this morning my, work, my words make you feel uncomfortable, then I'm getting through to you. Deal with it. Expand your mind to understand beyond and stretch your heart to love more. And since we are on the topic of love, believe me, love your neighbor as yourself is awesome. It's super awesome. But there's a new command in town. In chapter 13, verse 34 of the John's Gospel, it says, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And I will say this once more. We are not longer the center. Love is. And if we can learn to live this way, we can change the world. Please. Thank you, Caesar. What a gift. I don't listen to many preachers, but I've been listening to Caesar for a while. It's the shift from the center that we're feeling. It's the euphoric sense that maybe the stories of people of color who have always been on the periphery might now be featured as important parts of us. And it's the dread and the guilt related to those of, of us who have occupied that center, knowing that it won't be about us now, maybe. Thank you for that teaching. I don't know how he finds that stuff there. I've read that text my whole life and never saw that stuff. The gospel, in essence, offers us the promise of a new world. 
without any one single community holding the center. I hope this is becoming clear for us now. If you've ever been in love, you know that to love is to accept this reality that you are no longer the only one. Right, Case? Mom? To love that newborn child means you've lost the center. I wonder if you figured that out yet. <laughs> Six weeks old, little Maggie has already taught you that the movement of God and love is to release and not hold that center. That's the kind of community we're talking about, and we must willingly follow with open hands. I dream of an anti-racist church, not just one who says that's racist and that's I dream of a system that's wired the opposite, and I know that it's going to take effort, and it's going to take every resource we can deploy if we're ever going to get that built. The vision I have for ANC isn't some kind of raceless, melted-down, diluted, new cultural compound made out of the raw material that we used to be before we got here. No, no, a melting pot doesn't compel me at all. So don't drop your Indian heritage. Don't forget the magnificent depth of your Chinese or Taiwanese DNA. Your African-American identity, it belongs here too. Don't hate the fact that your Oma and Opa came from Germany years ago looking for better opportunities. And for God's sakes, don't check your Mexicanidad at the door. It belongs here. Bring that. Bring all of that. You are all of that. And bring that to the community of faith. I don't dream of a melting pot. I dream of a tapestry where every thread represents who we were, who we are, who we're becoming, and it's woven together into something new, true to what it was, bringing all of that richness into something far greater than it could be alone, made of every single one of us. This should be familiar to us by now. Is this not the story of redemption? It's not the obliteration of your story. It's the fulfillment of your story. Jesus was a Jew, after all, fulfilling the law of Moses. We should know by now that the story of redemption doesn't require us to melt and become some bland color. No, no. We are the people who can celebrate and appreciate every one of those stories as they're woven together. But this kind of thing is going to take some effort, isn't it? This is why churches don't do this, isn't it, Don? This is why we've just now crossed a, a, a a mild marker that says there's no return now from where we're headed. I wonder if you've thought about this, and these are my final thoughts. We don't have to accept the world that we were given. You know that, right? Your inheritance doesn't come with a limitation other than our imagination. We don't have to accept the way the world was. We can build new stuff with what we've inherited. And I think what I'm trying to call us to is this, a better future, a broader community. We have the resources if we're bold enough to use them all. And so these final words as the band joins me on stage and join me on your feet. Go ahead. These words come from a book that Elia Delia wrote called The Unbearable Wholeness of Being, God, Evolution, and the Power of Love. And these words resonated with me this week. And I leave, this, leave you with these. She writes, On the whole, we are not conscious of evolution. And we do not act as if our choices can influence the direction of evolution, what will it take for us to realize that we are unfinished creatures who are in the process of being created, that our world is being created, that our church is being created, that Christ is being formed in us? The good news of Jesus Christ is not so much what happens to us, but what must be done by us. The choices we make for the future will create the future. We must reinvent ourselves in love. Join me in prayer.